This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Johanna Masca, and this week on Press Advance, I'm thrilled to have Congressman Mike Gallagher join me. Congressman Mike Gallagher is the chair of the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party of the United States House of Representatives. He's a congressman from the great state of Wisconsin, and we have a lot in common despite being on different sides of the aisle. Congressman Mike Gallagher, thank you so much for joining Press Advance. I'm honored to be with you. You know, you and I were both raised about five hours from each other, Green Bay, Wisconsin, Galesburg, Illinois, heartland of America, went in slightly different political directions. I worked with President Obama, traveled with him. You, of course, served in the military seven years and two tours in Iraq, right? Yes. Technically, I worked for President Obama. I was in the executive branch when he was president at one point on active duty. So you were. There we go. You were. Yeah. You were. But the real divide is the Illinois-Wisconsin divide. (laughs) We have a variety of pejorative terms for people on the southern side of the border. I won't rehash them on what I'm sure is a profanity-free podcast, but (laughs) you've earned that. All I will say is that the evil... Illinois people have earned that. Hey, now, Galesburg, Illinois is more like, you know, Green Bay than we are like Chicago. I'll I'll accept that. I'll accept that. Uh, Well, I am thrilled to talk to you today because I think, you know, we've seen the world in a way few others can imagine. And I remember meeting with the Chinese Communist Party a number of times, and it just is mind blowing. Like you never know who's in charge. There's a, it's a rule by committee. There's no rights for individuals. There were fights with our press. You are now the chair of the select committee on the Chinese communist party in the United States house. And you are starting to hold them accountable. And I am very grateful for that. And that's what I wanted to have a conversation about today. What worries you most when it comes to China and the threat to people in Galesburg, Illinois, and in Green Bay, Wisconsin? Well, I think to some extent, I still reflect the bias I brought into the discussion as a a military guy and a Marine veteran, which is to say the prospect of a war with China over Taiwan is a very worrying prospect. And every war game I've played quickly escalates to a level that's almost hard for us to contemplate. Even if you happen to be involved in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the scale of a conventional, let alone a nuclear conflict with China, like a near peer, if not a peer adversary, is so immense as to be worrying. And you think about one carrier gets taken out by a Chinese long-range missile. That's about 5,000 Americans that die. That almost equals the total of people that we lost in combat over the course of two decades in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that, to me, is the most acute problem we face. And it matters for people in the Midwest because their sons and daughters could find themselves in the midst of that war. And war just has a devastating effect on all of our lives. I think it frays at the sort of edges of our constitution whenever we embark 
on a war. So war is to be deterred and avoided. Uh, that's why I've dedicated myself to the prevention of this war as my mission in Congress, as grandiose as that sounds. But in doing the work of the committee, I think I've gained a respect for maybe a more insidious long-term threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party. And it's not just the risk that someone in Illinois or Wisconsin could have their job evaporate because China cheated on you know its WTO promises and an entire industry disappeared. That is a threat for sure. And it's affected a lot of people that you and I know very well. But in some ways, if we allow China to beat us in the midterm and the long term and control the commanding heights of critical technology, become the dominant global power, we will see a steady collapse of the very idea of the free world. Put differently, and I'll shut up after this. Everything that may drive you crazy when a particular industry or individual decides not to say something because they fear angering the Chinese Communist Party or turns a blind eye to genocide or egregious human rights abuses, you can multiply that by 100. And that's the way the entire world will have to operate in a world in which America is no longer the leader of the free world or the dominant global power. Such will be the coercive economic and dare I say cultural power that the CCP will be able to exert. And that's really what worries me over the long term. That scares me so much. And I think so often we are distracted by stupid menial fights with each other that we're not focused on this real threat. I want to talk about TikTok for a minute because I saw media, the power of media up close. And I have been shocked recently with teachers legitimately asking me about what they're seeing on TikTok, including the Osama bin Laden letter and some of the pro-Hamas content, which I'm like, oh, my God, the power of disinformation is real. How did TikTok get so big? Well, I'm prepared to concede at the outset. Uh, and I say this as you know, I'm, I guess I'm one of the younger members of Congress, which is not saying a lot. It's a bit like being the best player on the Chicago Bears. It's a, a <laughs> distinction without a difference. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm supposed to be like knowledgeable about uh, social media. But in terms of my personal use, I'm, I'm not because I don't have any of it. I don't. I deleted all my accounts a long time ago. But I'm prepared to concede based on studying this problem that perhaps the technology is just better. Right. Like it like in terms of its ability to grab you and the content it pushes, for whatever reason, the algorithm seems to be doing a better job at addicting young Americans than, say, Instagram or other apps. Right. And I guess I'm prepared to concede the broader point, which is that all of social media is a cesspool. But I'm not sure Congress has the ability to do something about that overall, but it does have ability to do something about foreign control of a dominant media platform. Um, so how did it get to this point? A, the technology seems to be very good. B, I think we just got complacent. And maybe that's related to B slash C, which is we thought like the promise of social media. And you actually probably saw this when you were in the executive branch, because that would have been like the heyday of all of this coming to the fore and using it as a way to like influence policy and influence politics and things like that. Like the initial promise was that, hey, we're all going to be able to connect you're going to have all these friends online. It's going to be kumbaya, hold hands. It's going to be amazing, right? We're going to understand people from different perspectives. We're going to break down all these barriers. Well, the opposite seems to have happened, right? We've allowed people to self-select into groups that reinforce their pre-existing biases. Now, based on the work of great social scientists like Jonathan Haidt, Greg Lukianoff, we know that it's having a very negative impact on 
anxiety, depression, and suicide among young Americans in general and young women in particular. And so I think we just kind of, we had the wrong set of assumptions about the technology. And now we're at a point where I think because TikTok hasn't been fully transparent about what it is, we're not just talking about a platform for silly dance videos or a fun diversion. It is increasingly a news platform. Most young Americans are getting their news from TikTok. And that to me is the bigger problem. It's not just that it could be used as a an espionage mechanism. It could be used as a, a misinformation or disinformation mechanism to control what Americans think is true uh, and isn't. Um, I, maybe I have like a final thought that makes me really sound like an old man yelling, get off my lawn, which is like parents didn't do a great job of telling kids to like read books and go outside and exist IRL, not like online all day. But again, that's not uh, something I have a legislative solution for. I'm struggling with my own kids to figure that whole thing out. It's so hard (laughs) with my own kids this weekend. All he wants to do is play Fortnite with his friends. And I'm like, no, let's have your friend over. But like even getting that step is so hard. But you have been in intelligence and you've seen there is a nefarious factor. You know, the Chinese intelligence apparatus I remember the very first time I met with a Chinese official, they gifted me right away. So pleasant, right? (laughs) Which I immediately turned over to the United States Secret Service because there's a nefarious side in which they are trying to control and manipulate all of this data. Do you have anything that you guys have seen so far that China is trying to do with TikTok in trying to get more information on Americans? Well, I can't tell you that, you know, we have a smoking gun where China, you know, CCP official embedded in ByteDance pressed a big red button and said, tweak the algorithm in order to get Americans to hate other Americans, right? But what we know for sure is that CCP officials are intimately embedded in the corporate governance structure of ByteDance. Uh, ByteDance executives, um, including, I mean, some of them are dual rolled as CCP officials. Others have been forced to apologize for uh, failing to follow appropriate political direction of the Chinese Communist Party and vowing that all future product lines would follow appropriate uh, political direction. We've also had cases of TikTok being used to spy on journalists. We've had cases of certain storylines relative to the ongoing genocide in Xinjiang uh, being suppressed. And now I think we're about to see at least a few analyses that aren't yet public that basically compare, to the extent you can do a fully controlled comparison between Instagram and TikTok, just certain outcomes in terms of what trends on these platforms. Some of this has to do with the recent conflict between Israel and Hamas that just simply doesn't make sense. So even if you don't think right now, that the Chinese Communist Party via ByteDance is somehow controlling TikTok and using it as a way to influence Americans or spy on Americans. Let's say you just totally think that's crazy and outlandish and I'm just some crazy right-wing hawk. There's no question that if they wanted to in the future, they could do that, right? Because ByteDance, like every Chinese company, is beholden to the Chinese Communist Party. And they've passed a variety of laws in recent years, making these companies even more beholden to the Chinese Communist Party. There is no meaning in in any meaningful sense, a private company in China. You exist at the pleasure of the CCP. And then combine that, and I swear I'll end on this, with everything Xi Jinping has said about what he calls the smokeless battlefield, which is information warfare. 
and how critical it is. It is the most critical thing, in his opinion, for beating the United States over the long term. It's simply a risk that we can't take. Uh, and that's why I think it's so important that we address it. I'm not trying to say there's an easy fix for it. I know this is a complicated issue, but I think there's a shared bipartisan concern over the path going forward and that the status quo is unacceptable. So we have to figure it out. It is. And we have to be thinking this way. I remember my dad worked at Pizza Hut in Galesburg, Illinois. And I remember him when dawn of the internet saying, Johanna, there's no way anybody will ever order pizza on the internet. <laughs> and I think a lot of people order pizza on the internet Once now. a year, once a year, you should just send him a pizza online. <laughs> I know, I know. But it is. We have to think these many steps in advance. And I think for too long, our elected leaders didn't do that. So now we're in this situation, including where the Internet has grown up completely unregulated. So you've got an ability for people to put things online that live forever and you can't even take it off. What is the appetite in Congress, if any, on Section 230 reform? I think there is an appetite for it where, well, maybe I, I could address sort of the specific TikTok issue, which I think is slightly different than Section 230 reform, though they're related. So for TikTok, I think there was a lot of appetite to do something at the beginning of Congress. And then two things happened that reduced that momentum. One is the Senate tried to move a bill called the Restricts Act. Fairly or unfairly, it was viewed as um, giving too much authority to the executive branch. Uh, it was you know, attacked by various media officials. Again, fairly or unfairly, whatever. It happened. A lot of people became gun shy about doing anything. And the second thing is TikTok launched a very expensive and sophisticated lobbying campaign. Um, and so people, I think, are now loath. Maybe there's a third thing, which is that um, we're heading into election year. And, and quite honestly, some politicians don't want to anger younger voters. I think that's a bad excuse for inaction, like offending a 17-year-old who may be able to vote next year is like, to me, is not persuasive enough to override the national security concerns, but that's where we are. But I think the appetite is there again, and we're trying to get something done, this Congress, because people are seeing just all the vitriol on TikTok right now. You mentioned the Osama bin Laden letter. There's just been a lot of concern generated by things like that. On 230 reform, similarly, I think there is a desire to do something But I've yet to see a bill that I think threads the needle the right way. And my concern is that if you make social media companies liable for all the content on their platform, is there a world in which that would result in more, not less censorship? In other words, would they be more aggressive in kicking people off the platform so that they're not liable for what they say on it? I don't know. I'm open to some elegant solution there. I just don't have it. I'm sort of focused more narrowly on the issue of TikTok, which is one of foreign control of a social media company as opposed to just social media in general and how it should be regulated. It just does seem like there were so many guardrails on effective journalism and they're all gone in this social media environment. And I don't know, I agree with you, like who is the arbiter? It's probably not private industry, but I don't know what that becomes. There does need to be some sort of arbiter or you have, you know, a young girl who has something posted. She thinks it's the end of her life because she can never get it down. So we've got to change something. By the way, can I confess, like, it's not like I'm sitting here as some highly evolved human being who is not affected by negative things that are like the re- part of the reason I'm, I'm off this stuff, like it's not on my phone 
is because if I have Twitter, let's say, or X now that we're calling it, on my phone, and all of a sudden I pull it up and I get like five posts about how Mike Gallagher is an idiot or you said this wrong or, you know, he's going bald, which is true, unfortunately. <laughs> um, like, yeah, that, like that'll, that'll ruin my day. Like, I, you know, I, I wish I weren't <laughs> sensitive to that stuff. So I've just chosen to like not expose myself to it and consume my negative feedback in a more constructive way. And I mean, imagine if you're like a young adult just trying to figure out who you are, what you want to do with your life. I I get, I mean, you can just see how toxic it might be. Isn't it crazy? It's crazy and it's focused on the wrong things. I agree with you. I got multiple comments on News Nation about roots and I was like, I'm naturally blonde. It must be the lighting. And they're like, you're lying. I'm like, no, I'm really not. Jesus. And then you and then okay. you waste forty eight hours litigating your roots. And I'm not focused way. on China's critical industries. That's another area that I'm I am just shocked when you start digging into it. For those who don't know, until your committee started investigating it, many Americans were using their investment vehicles to unwittingly support Chinese defense companies, including the thrift savings plan. The accounts of our federal government retirees were actually invested in Chinese munitions companies. So you guys are holding people accountable by just bringing up things. But China actually owns a lot of our critical industries. Our largest pork producer, Smithfield, is owned by China. We're importing almost 40% of our antibiotics from China. How did we get here? Because I just, I look at it and it's like Clinton had most favored nation status. You know, I remember Obama trying to isolate China's bad practices with TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a multilateral trade agreement with China's neighbors. Of course, it got thrown out by both far wings of the party. Trump was supposed to be negotiating with them over some, you know, ag deal. But then we had COVID that (laughs) kind of sidelined the entire economy. So it seems like everyone has blood on their hands. I don't know how we got here, but like if you had to peg one thing on how we got here, what would it be? Well, I do think the original sin was China's accession to the WTO, uh, and you reference Clinton and most favored nation status. And by the way, I don't mean that as a partisan point, because it was Republicans and Democrats kind of made the same basic bet. And interestingly enough, if you examine at least one of the speeches that Clinton gave at the time, I I forget the specific one, he said something to the effect of, um, you know, good luck trying to keep the internet out of China. That'll be like nailing jello to a wall. Well, it turns out they kind of figured out how to nail jello to the wall by just controlling their own Chinese internet and that's sanitized. And by the way, to link this to TikTok, American social media companies are not allowed in China. Like they don't get past the Great Firewall unless you have a sophisticated VPN. Like they don't let our companies in and we are like, you know, wringing our hands about how, whether or not to allow their company to become the dominant social media platform here in America. But again, that just gets to the basic bad bet we made, which is that by integrating China to the global economy, it would moderate their political behavior and they could become a responsible stakeholder over time. There was a logic to that, right? We all bought into it, but it happened not to work, I think, because we misunderstood the nature of the Chinese Communist Party. We sort of didn't want to believe that this was a profoundly Marxist-Leninist organization and that we, I think we just overestimated the likelihood of political reform. And then there's a series of other things. To your point about the thrift savings plan, I hate to be cynical, but I do think 
greed is at the heart of this. Like, let's be honest, a lot of people made a lot of money off investing in the Chinese market. They had a golden blindfolds on. They didn't want to see the political repression. They did not want to see the genocide underway. They did not want to see the militarization of the South China Sea. All of these things were obvious to anyone paying attention. But for those pursuing profits, they just didn't want to have to account for them. And so now we found ourselves in a situation in which billions and billions of dollars continue to flow to China to be invested in things like aircraft carriers, artillery shells, nuclear technology, advanced fighter aircraft, things that are designed to kill Americans in a future conflict American investors are still able to invest in. Now, part of this is also because the federal government, we have all these different lists, right? We have the OFAC list. We have the communist Chinese military company list. We have the human rights list. These lists are poorly managed. They don't talk to each other. Like they're hard to enforce. And so there is legitimate confusion out there. So we could do a better job at that. My final point would be you referenced Smithfield. So that's a related issue of Chinese investment here as opposed to American investment in China. We have a process for that. It's called the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. But one thing we found when we looked at this about four years ago is that CFIUS is really poorly equipped to take a look at the scale and scope of Chinese investments in the United States. And even when we tried to reform it to give the authority to take a look at things like Chinese land purchases near military bases, the implementing regulations were so vague that CFIUS claimed they didn't have the authority to do that. And so we saw a variety of troubling Chinese land purchases even near like nuclear facilities here in America. So I, again, I just think we got complacent. I actually asked the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the former chairman, Joe Dunford, this question. And he said something that always stuck with me. He said, you know, since the mid-90s, we just haven't had anyone breathing down our neck. So we just let our guard down. We got complacent. And I think that's behind a lot of this. It's amazing. And so we've talked about how we got here, but how are we going to change it? News Nation is hosting the next Republican debate. I'm thrilled. That's where I'm a contributor. So Morgan Ortegas and I will be providing fantastic analysis, I'm sure. But I want to know from you, who has the most credibility on China in the Republican Party? And what are the proposals you're watching on the Republican side of the aisle? Does it have to be elected officials or can it just be anyone in general? <laughs> yeah. It can be anybody uh, in general, but then also about the debate, like of the candidates, what are the proposals oh, you're oh, watching? Oh, got it. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Um, well, first of all, congrats to News Nation. I will tune in solely for your and Morgan's analysis. <laughs> there should be a pregame and a postgame analysis. It's going to be in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and we will do pre and post. And uh, and I will say, I News Nation is fun. We're honest. So anybody can come on and be honest, which is so refreshing. I love it. I, love it. Um, I would say just in general, and I am I guess I'm a little bit biased because he's a friend of mine, but the, I think the person that deserves a lot of credit for the shift on China, like the intellectual architect of this whole thing in recent years, the sort of George Kennan of the new Cold War, is Matt Pottinger. He was the China lead on the NSC under Trump and then became the deputy national security advisor. He continues to write and speak prolifically about this. I served with him in the Marine Corps. Prior to that, he was a journalist. He spent a ton of time in China. He speaks Mandarin. He's just like, he knows what he he's speaking about, as opposed to me who just pretends to know on TV, but he gets a lot of credit, as does H.R. McMaster, for for the national security strategy that really was the biggest shift in U.S. foreign policy since the end of the old Cold War. In terms of uh, people running for president, I think both 
uh, Governor DeSantis and Governor Haley have had a very strong kind of what I would call a smart hawkish position on China uh, that understands sort of the nature of the threat. They've both given big speeches attempting to articulate a comprehensive approach to it. You might quibble with this or that there, but there's a lot of good in that. In DeSantis' speech, in particular, he talked about the need to rebuild the United States Navy in terms of the conventional conflict. That's the most important thing because if you look at a map of the Pacific, there's a lot of water there, and therefore the Navy is the priority force and the priority theater. By extension, the Marine Corps is the supporting effort number one for the Navy. And that's sort of the biggest thing we need to get right, the hard power component. So I give him credit for that. So Vivek Ramaswamy has been casting everybody as these sellouts, but he himself had a partnership with the Chinese Communist Party and the Saudis were heavily invested in his company that he left to the woke individuals to run it as he wrote Woke Inc. What do you think about Vivek's plans on China? Well, where I've disagreed honestly with Vivek, and I've had the disagreement with him and just credit, he's been willing to to like call me directly and go... 10 rounds on the issues, which I, a few people are. And so I sort of on one level respect that. Yeah. I think where, where we disagree most honestly and intensely are, and I, I forget what he said about this recently, is A, on the issue of Taiwan. I think he put forward the proposal of we will defend them for five years and then Until we'll abandon them. Until it's not them. worth our time anymore. <laughs> yeah, which is, is, in my opinion, it's kind of like the worst of both worlds because you upend strategic ambiguity in the short term, which is fine. But then, so you sort of take the hit for that. But then like you immediately abandon that on the exact same date that Xi Jinping is set for his military to be ready to take Taiwan. So it's almost like it reduces our interest in Taiwan just to semiconductors and also overestimates our ability to be completely independent, uh, like not to not rely on Taiwan for advanced semiconductors five years from now, which I just don't think is is realistic. And then on TikTok, we have a, a disagreement as well. I think after he met with Logan Paul or Jake, one of the Pauls. One of the Pauls. Jake Paul. Like, Pauls. <laughs> Literally, my Again. son gets his advice from the Pauls. <laughs> I think, really? <laughs> this is not a... Turns oh, out one dear. of these guys is a legit <laughs> boxer. So, I, I mean, yeah. I thought that was... A, apparently, he's a good fighter. I don't know. I mean, so he can kick my ass. Uh, so I guess yeah. I, I, I give him that. But on TikTok, I think Vivek doesn't think we should take action either in the form of a ban or a for sale. And I obviously disagree with that for reasons we've already talked about. Yeah. I realize time is short for you. I have so many more questions. Governor Gavin Newsom, now I live in California, where I know you spend some time. Governor Gavin where Newsom decided- Where in California decided, are you? I'm now in Los Angeles area. But um, Governor Gavin Newsom traveled to China and the news focused on him, like, checking a kid, which seems to miss the point. Do you know anything about what Governor Newsom was doing in China and what promises, if any, he got from President Xi when he was there? Well, I, again, I, I hate to be cynical, but I think what Gavin Newsom was doing in China is running for president, right? Like, we know Gavin Newsom wants to be president. I mean, you want, you would know. Yeah. The he Democratic wants to be president. He was married entry. to Kimberly Guilfoyle. That's, it's wild. It's wild, by yeah. the way. Uh, I'm not here to comment on that. Um, uh, so, you know, I, you know, build up your credentials at, on foreign policy. Obviously that's not his background or, or strong suit. Um, you know, there's a lot of economic interests between China and, and California, but even just as a political move, I'm, I'm not sure I understood like, why would you stake out a position to the left of Biden on China, right? Like, it was even more obsequious 
to Xi Jinping than anything I've seen Biden do. Like it was even more, and it gets to a really important point. I actually think this is one of the the biggest disagreements between the parties is the relative prioritization of climate change in our relationship with Mm. China. So my view, uh, as someone who thinks like, you know, the climate is changing and we should, you know, do something about it. People can disagree about what that thing is. China uses that as a way to sort of, to get us not to take action on certain issues. And oh, by the way, the the CCP is like the worst environmental actor in the world. So this idea that John Kerry subscribes to that, that Xi Jinping is going to abide by commitments made at COP 28 or 29, I just don't think is an accurate assessment of what's going on. And so I think maybe the best interpretation of Newsom's visit was that he feels so passionately about climate change and that we need to cooperate with China on climate change, that that is why he went to China. And I would argue that that is not realistic. And I, I'm not actually sure that was the reason for the trip, but maybe I'll pause there and allow you to respond and tell me why. No, I, th- I think you're right, actually. It's almost like the internet over again, where we think because their interest in us all not dying because of the effects of climate change is going to be so great that they're going to manage it the way we want to it managed, where we will see them manage it in a way in which they've already shored up so many critical minerals around the world that we are going to be beholden. And probably similarly, you know, even Europe has allowed them to buy auto manufacturers. We've also allowed a lot of that. And I think there's probably room for some skepticism. Last question, because I know your time is uh, short. Otherwise, I'd have you on for much longer because you have so much on this. You know, I was frustrated during the Trump administration when he was negotiating a short term trade deal because there's 1.4 billion people in China. They want our agricultural goods. They poisoned their own people with a baby formula that literally killed babies. So I didn't see that as much of a concession and felt like we missed so many opportunities in alienating a lot of our allies on China. What did Trump, what do you think Trump actually got from China that he could actually run on again? On the trade deal, almost nothing. I think the trade deal was a massive failure, right? I mean, they committed to buy, I think it was like over $200 billion worth of our goods, if not more, by the way, and none of that materialized. So- Trade deal was a mistake. I guess the 301 tariffs that preceded the trade deal, I thought were a good piece of work. I give Ambassador Lighthizer a lot of credit for that. And I was a skeptic originally. I mean, my natural orientation is to not like tariffs because they are in a meaningful sense taxes on the American people. But in that case, if you actually read the investigation, they did a ton of in-depth analysis, tying it to intellectual property theft, cheating on WTO um, promises, et cetera, which I, I think it was warranted. But the trade deal, I don't I don't think worked in any sense. So if you were going to step back and then grade Trump administration overall, I think that would probably be like a bad grade. I don't know if we're doing A through F. Does anyone get Fs anymore? Is it grade and play? Everyone gets <laughs> I think like, they're supposed to. Like C minus <laughs> C- is the worst you can get. I don't know. That would be at the sort of near the bottom grade. You have to give them credit for what I referenced earlier, which is the overall shift conceptually on China, yeah. right? But then you could argue that at least when it came to the military component of that shift, we didn't actually implement the national security strategy and the national defense strategy. Like we didn't have more ships or long-range precision fires in the Indo-Pacific 
at the end of the Trump administration than the start. And that was a big failure. So as with everything, it was kind of like two steps forward, one and three quarter steps back at time. On TikTok and, and kind of like the information warfare, the Trump administration tried to take action. They ran into a legal buzzsaw and ultimately we weren't able to take any action. On outbound capital investment at the end of the Trump administration, they had an executive order that started a lot of this. So you got to give them at least like a B or a B plus for that. And then on pandemic, you know, we obviously we didn't hold the CCP accountable in any meaningful sense. And there was always this weird dichotomy between certain Trump administration officials saying one thing and then Trump himself saying another thing. So I don't know what that means for what a second Trump administration would look like. I suspect it depends entirely on who his team is. Yeah, I have no idea. Wait, one quick story. My first time I got called to the principal's office, I don't know if it was the Oval Office or the cabinet room or whatever it is. I had the amendment that would have imposed the death penalty on ZTE, which is a big Chinese telecom company like Huawei and ZTE. We were trying to prevent them from controlling the world's internet infrastructure. And Trump was trying to strike the phase one trade deal with Xi, and he called me and a, a few other like hawkish members of Congress in, and he's like, you guys are killing me. I got to make a deal with this guy. Like, I, call, I don't even call him president. I call him king. He's a king, okay? He's got total control of everything. It's King Xi. King Xi. <laughs> so that was one of my few experiences with Trump directly. He didn't want to have to be so tough with China. He talked well, I, a good game. Yeah. I think Trump had this and probably still has this belief that he personally, with like his personal relationships with foreign leaders, particularly like these big guys like Xi, can strike deals, right? Which makes sense given his background. There's like a Biden version of this, by the way, where like he, because he, you know, him and she were friends and they spent X number of hours together. Biden's like, we spent a hundred thousand hours together. You know, uh, like they just, there's just sort of this hubristic belief that a lot of presidents have where it's like they alone can strike a deal with, with these people that ignores again, the nature of the regime. Every time you meet with them, they bring 40 people and it's like you don't know who even has power. At one point, someone told me the translator was the one with the most power in the room. And it's like, how do you think you're going to negotiate with one person you're negotiating with the entire party? It's a very sticky problem, Mike, that I am really grateful that you guys are bringing a lot of light to. And I'd love to stay in touch as you continue to. Because it's also been a bipartisan and a younger uh, generation thing that you've staked. And I really, really appreciate that as we continue to dive into an uncertain future, which I'm afraid uh, you and I are probably the same generation and our ages added together would be about the age of our leaders right now. Let's hope yeah. the Republicans are going for someone younger because we're not on the Democratic side, I'm afraid. If we could nominate someone <laughs> under the age of 70, I think it would be a landslide. No offense to your party, but like I say this as, as yeah. the, I'm like the oldest possible boomer, but Biden is, I mean, I'm, I'm the oldest possible uh, millennial. Yeah. Biden's so old, he's not even a boomer. But Biden's a member no, of the silent I, generation. I know. We're we're like exennials, I think is what some people call us. And uh, yet, yeah, right now, whew, 
We need some fresh, fresh uh, leadership. We're probably not going to get it on the on the Democratic side. So, Godspeed for the Republican next presidential debate. I will keep everything you've just said in mind. I have heard Matt Pottinger's name a number of times. So, very He's grateful for that. He's very yeah. smart. So, thank you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Yeah. Likewise. Good to talk with you. I'm grateful for the community we're building on Press Advance. Each week, we're going to try to have a refreshingly honest conversation with different perspectives represented. We're also not going to be perfect, so we want your feedback, your thoughts. You can find me on social media at Johanna Masca and follow Press Advance wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is produced by Situation Room Studios with a talented team led by the former Bloomberg Politics executive producer, Christine Barada. My thanks to all involved.